Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. The eighth alaya or storehouse consciousness by Hakuin Ekaku Zenji. Each and every sentient being is possessed of an old mirror that reflects all things just as they are, without any distortion or lack whatsoever. All the universe, in its immense variety, heaven and hell, the pure land and the impure world, the realms of Buddhas and of demons, birth and death and nirvana, are all appearances reflected on this mirror. Within it is stored each of the passions you have experienced in the past, sadness and compassion, love and hate, without exception, joy and anger, suffering and pleasure, purities and impurities of various kinds are all stored here, never to be lost. As this ancient mirror is the source of all these appearances, it is called the storehouse consciousness, also called the non-discriminating consciousness. As it reflects truly all existences, it is called the great perfect mirror wisdom. But if you take a mallet and deliver a decisive blow to the mirror, shattering it completely, so you see through to its root source, you will find that the light of the great perfect mirror is entirely in your power to use with absolute freedom in leading other living beings to deliverance. On entering this non-discriminatory consciousness, You must not retreat even a hair's breadth, but bore steadily on, seeking the great transformation. Arousing a great mass of doubt, you must probe the question. At this very moment, having become one with the non-discriminating alaya consciousness, utterly free of thought and emotion. Where does life come from? Where does death go? If an illusory thought should suddenly appear, take it and proceed straight away to determine the place where it arose. As your concentration gradually begins to mature, 
you will find that when you walk, you are unaware you are walking. When you sit, you are unaware you are sitting. It will seem to you as though you are in the midst of a vast emptiness, perfectly clear and open. If you keep pressing forward without fear or hesitation, the entire universe in all ten directions, all the heavens and hells will become one with your mind and body and will then all at once disappear without a trace. The student who refuses to accept this as an ultimate attainment and goes on whipping forward the wheel of the four universal vows for endless kalpas without ever backsliding, bringing benefit to countless sentient beings, confirming the four Buddha wisdoms, and cultivating the three Buddha bodies until, finally, clarifying the one great matter of human life. Such a person is a fully realized bodhisattva, a true, a true, and authentic child of the Buddha. Good evening. We're on part five of this one day, this one sitting free of chronological time. And we're commemorating the great master Hakuin. So many of you gather here every Rohatsu. This Rohatsu Sangha is truly all and in itself one of the miracles of our practice at Daibosatsu Zendo. And so you know about Hakuin's life, his strenuous practice, his many Kensho experiences. But some of you may be here for the first Rohatsu. How many First Rohatsu attendees. 
So I'll say a few things about him. He was born and lived almost all his life in the small village of Hara, between, uh, beneath the towering volcanic presence of Fujisan, Mount Fuji. Born in 1686, he lived until 1769, so roughly the same time as Johann Sebastian Bach. His teachings have been so inspiring to me ever since I first picked up that book my first year of college, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, and saw and read the stories. And of course, inspiring Zen students all over the world, generation after generation. He was so intimate with the Tang Dynasty great masters, and of course, with Japanese masters, especially Dogen. And his exhortations that we hear each night are piercing. He gave utterly of himself through words, through artwork, through calligraphy, always for just one thing, to awaken the monks who gathered around him, the uneducated farmers and villages, villagers whose lives were so difficult in that feudal era. And he was the great reviver of Rinzai Zen. He organized the koan system we continue to use. He created his own koans, most famously sound one hand. And it's said that he carved the wooden statue of himself. We have a photo of it on the altar. Those of us who were on the Hakuin pilgrimage that Kaz Tanahashi and I led in 2003, remember sitting there in that zendo at Shoinji and being allowed to go to the back and see that colossal statue. Hmm? 
So today's text is an unusual one, but it was an important one for Hakuin. On the eighth consciousness, or the alaya, or storehouse consciousness. It's based on the teachings of the Yogacara, or mind-only school of Mahayana Buddhism. There's a verse in the Avatamsaka Sutra, the flower garland. The mind is like a painter who paints the five skandhas in all their forms. In all of the worlds that exist, there's nothing it doesn't create. And of course, we take these illusory creations of ours as real and permanent, and they continue subtly influencing us lifetime after lifetime. Hakuin says in this text, Each and every sentient being is possessed of an old mirror that reflects all things just as they are, without any distortion or lack whatsoever. All the universe, in its immense variety, heaven, hell, pure land, impure world, the realms of Buddhas and of demons, birth and death and nirvana, are all appearances reflected on this mirror. And within it is stored each of the passions you have experienced in the past. Sadness and compassion, love and hate, without exception, Joy and anger, suffering and pleasure, purities and impurities of various kinds are all stored here, never to be lost. And it's not just a passive thing, is it? These are the seeds of our present experiences. And our present experiences become the seeds for what we will encounter. So in other words, the Alaya consciousness is our karmic imprint. Everything we've ever thought, said, or done is lodged there. Does it ever occur to you to wish that you had not said something, had not done something? You may think to yourself, okay, I'll make an apology and that will be that. But it's stored. And it keeps us going around and around in samsara. Birth, 
death, birth, death. Oh, it's a new life. I don't even recognize it. Okay, but those seeds are there. Those traces are there. All the six realms, devas, humans, asuras, fighting gods, animals, hungry ghosts, hell dwellers. They're all pretty familiar to us, and every now and then they pay a call. And we find ourselves being asuras instead of humans. I'm right. Listen to me. No, I'm not going to listen to you. Listen to me. <laughs> on and on. We see the evidence of the Alaya consciousness so clearly in our zazen how our early experiences in this life, let alone the last 500, shape our lives. And how certain themes seem to play out again and again. So whether we believe in reincarnation or karma or the realm of hell or not, I think everyone here realizes that we reap what we have sown, huh? Right now, you are sitting here due to your fortunate karma. And your fortunate karma is based on your terrible karma, which you have in some amazing way purified to bring you to this point. And guess what? You can't stay here. <laughs> Everything right now, you are thinking. Everything in the last hour, you said. Everything this morning, you did. You may be thinking to yourself now, oh, what a fool. I really am. I can't believe I said that. <laughs> You did, and it is stored. <laughs> For Hakuin, that realm of hell was real and ever-present. Some of you may know the story of being a young boy, accompanying his mother, who was a devout Nichiren Buddhist practitioner, to the local temple. And at the age of 11, hearing a visiting priest, Nichigon, give a real fire and brimstone sermon on the consequences of bad acts. Vividly, depicting the sufferings of hell. Hakuin 
heard this and thought about how he and his village friends had been catching small creatures, insects, fish, snakes, frogs, and killing them and watching their life force ebb away. Suddenly he was so appalled and so terrified and sure he would have to go to hell. And even though we, as I said, may not think of hell as an actuality, I'm sure we all at the same time can remember being convinced of how we were in what we really felt was a hell realm. How many of you have felt that way even if you didn't call it that? Oh yeah, I had such a terrible day. Somehow. You know, I think also that we, many of us have had an experience that really struck us the way Hakuin's did him in early childhood, acts we later regretted. Rereading the story about his boyhood, I was remembering something that for me was extremely bitter. At the time, it was uh, just a typically selfish thing. I had gotten a sled for my third birthday. I lived with my grandmother. My mother and I had moved in with her after my father was killed in the war. And my birthday's in October, so there was no snow. So I was like, oh, this sled, when am I going to get, I want to go on my sled. And lo and behold, it started snowing. And it was so beautiful. And I knew my grandmother had to go and do errands on 13th Avenue. I said, okay, Grandma, we're going to take the sled. She said, oh, it's very icy. No, it's not a good day to go out. I said, there's snow. We have a sled. We have to go out. Well... You know, after my father's death, my grandparents and aunts and uncles all cherished me. They would look at me and say, oh, yes, there he is. So I could do anything. My wish was their command. So my grandmother, against her better judgment, got that 
sled out of the back basement door. And I got on it, you know, those sleds, little, little kids go on with the back and the arms. And I harnessed her up. And off we went. And it was so great. And we got to 13th Avenue, which was a big street, big, wide, lots of traffic. And we started crossing, and all of a sudden, my huge grandmother, who weighed about 350 pounds, was flat on her back in the middle of the street with cars coming every which way. And lo and behold, there was a car that stopped, and the people in it recognized her. It's Lily Wasserman. <laughs> they picked her up. They put her in the car. They picked up the sled, put it in the trunk. They picked up me. And I'm like, oh, oh. I felt so terrible. And... You know, I don't remember ever using that sled again. And from then on, I always was asking questions about God. It didn't really occur to me to ask about hell, but God. What about God? So I would ask my grandmother, who was not harmed, really. I would say to her, do you believe in God? Now this was, as Chimon mentioned, this was right after we started finding out about the relatives we had in Europe who were killed in the Holocaust. So somehow, nobody in my family wanted to talk about God. And my grandmother would, I don't know. I just light the Shabbos candles. But it was a very huge turning experience for me, and it was followed by what I would, say, or my mother remarried the next year, the next 15 or so years were a hell realm. So terrible. And yet it led to my sitting down. I didn't know a thing about Zen Buddhism. But I knew that when I sat down under that tree, I was going to be okay. Tree. Later on, I found out about a tree. I found out that it, this had a name. But these natural understandings that come to us through such experiences, I think, are what bring us here in one way or another. How many of you have had a totally fortunate childhood? 
Two, few, few. It's strange, right? It's rare. Or else some of you have, but you don't want to tell me that you were so fortunate. That's okay. (laughs) But I think most of us really do feel these challenges of earlier life that come through us in... Uh, from some kind of deeply unsettling events. And they lead us. Maybe at times we have felt these challenges were unbearable. But they were necessary. They, our own sensitivity... deepened because of them. Our empathy for others deepened because of them. And so we can really say, I'm so grateful for the tangled mess of my harmful karma. How many of you do this every day? Thank you. Thank you to everything that was really hurtful. This is the transformative practice that we are doing. And if you didn't have anything hurtful, don't worry, darling. You'll get something. You might have to wait till the next life, though. So it's really a question of what we do when we recognize this, when we feel this gratitude, this shift that results in the intense vow to transform. Yogan Senzaki said, only when we realize Buddha nature within ourselves can our karma be changed. Until the mind becomes refined enough to melt into its original Buddha nature, we are all blindfolding ourselves and do not know what we really are. Well, for Hakuin, the only way he could redeem himself was to be a monk. So he kept asking his parents. They kept saying no. And finally, at the age of 14, he was ordained by Tanrei Osho at Shoinji. Shoinji was the temple founded by his uncle and father. And later he went into sutra studies at Daishoji, where the Lotus Sutra was spoken of as the king of sutras. Well, for him, it was just a collection of parables to goad people into a kind of superficial understanding of cause and effect, good and evil, to have faith in Kanzeon Bodhisattva. And then he read about the great master Ganto Zenkatsu, 
being killed by bandits. And he thought, if all the power of Kanzeon that's in the Lotus Sutra couldn't save a teacher like Ganto, what good is it? And he abandoned his training. He spent his days hanging out with artists and writers and doing calligraphy. And some of us, too, may have drifted away from practice, gone through a period of dropping out for various reasons, maybe some kind of disillusionment that threw us off the tracks of practice. Changes in our lives, preoccupation with other things, thinking, eh, I don't really need that. Like Hakuin, what good is it? Didn't save Ganto. Yet, as Chimon said on that first day of this Rohatsu, sometimes we really need to give it all up. Let it go. Get rid of all our idealistic, romantic notions, our ideas about what works to gain spiritual currency, what practice should be. Some people have very definite ideas about what practice should be. Have you noticed? It's very annoying. In fact, some people think ordaining gives you the right to tell other people what to do. Wrong. I'm here to tell you. Falling off the tracks can actually be a way of dropping dependency and finding our own way, uncharted. And after a while, depending, of course, on our karma, we hear that vow still calling stronger than ever. Just return, just continue. You don't know why, you don't know what for, you don't know how good, 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 good. Be fresh, clueless. When 
Hakuin was 20, his mother died. Something mysterious led him to a temple called Zuyunji on its Mushiboshi day. What's a Mushiboshi day? Anybody? You know? Huh? Yeah, airing out all the treasures, yeah. calligraphies, books. Yeah. So, mold or, mold or bugs. Yeah. So he helped airing out all the books. They needed a little, you know, everybody's hands on deck. And while he was doing that, he had this overwhelming feeling, you know, I cannot go on with my aimless life. He put his palms together and prayed for guidance. He shut his eyes and just randomly he picked up a book, opened it. It wasn't this one, by the way. <laughs> It was titled, Spurring Zen Students Through the Barrier. And he read about Jimyo, who was on a pilgrimage and kept falling asleep while his fellow pilgrims were sitting straight through the night. And he finally felt such remorse and with that remorse, great resolve. <coughs> Every time he sat with an awl on his thigh and when the sleep demon approached, you know the sleep demon? <laughs> Whenever it approached, he just took the awl and dug it into his thigh and sure enough, Wide awake. You can try. <laughs> but you know, one of the things we discover in this long one day is that contrary to our assumptions, we really don't need to sleep because Zazen is so restorative. Now, I love sleep, and in a few moments, I'll just take a little nap and let me know when you want to hear more. But it's really true by the fifth, whatever you want to call this, chapter, it is very different. You can be tired and yet wide awake. Or you can be wide awake and so damn tired. Both ways. Hakuin's words in this text continue. 
As this ancient mirror is the source of all of these appearances, it is called the storehouse consciousness, also called the non-discriminating consciousness. But if you take a mallet and deliver a decisive blow to the mirror, shattering it completely so you see through to its root source, you will find that the light of the great perfect mirror is entirely in your power to use with absolute freedom in leading other living beings to deliverance. This paragraph is Hakuin's life. This was his motivation through everything that occurred. So that mallet, take a mallet and deliver a decisive blow. The non-discriminating consciousness becomes the light of differentiation. You may remember what Qigong Roshi said the other day, that great net of light illuminating all beings the radiant glory of the morning, the 10,000 things, or as we heard in Hokuto Osho's wonderful talk yesterday, Rinzai's non-differentiating light of your own heart. So what is that mallet? You never think about Zazen as a mallet, do you? And yet, we speak about breaking through. The song of Zazen. Even those who have practiced it for just one sitting will see all their harmful karma erased. Just One, this is the mallet, this kind of zazen. It's not like, oh, when will the bell ring? When you're doing this kind of zazen, this kind of deep samadhi, no self, then something, anything can trigger a breakthrough. As Ada Roshi often said, it depends on your karma. It depends on the dharma and the readiness of time can't be forced. But we can be ready. Ready. With it.
Hakuin, inspired by the story of Jimyo, went on pilgrimage and sat long, solitary retreats deep in the mountains, alone, cultivating his Joriki, power of samadhi. And one day, night, at the age of 24, he was secluded at Egonji and went into this kind of samadhi, what the sixth ancestor spoke of as not one single thing. In the meeting room, we have that scroll hanging now. Scroll was done by Mineo Daikyu Roshi. And at dawn, Hakuin heard distant temple Koncho. reverberating through his entire being, body, mind, all disappeared. And he cried out, Ganto is alive and well. And was so excited. And then what? As often happens with an early experience when you don't really have the cultivation of the soil of your Buddha nature, a great swell of ego. Wow, he was so proud of his achievement. I, 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 cocksure and arrogant, beware. A friend decided he'd better take him to see Shoju, Shoju Rojin, whose Dharma name was Dokyo Etan. He was living in a secluded temple, little temple called Shojuan, on means hut, in Iyama. And he was the heir of Shido Bunan, whose words quite famous. While alive, be a dead person, thoroughly dead. Then all will be well. So in Roshi's calligraphy, the great death. Or as Joshu Jushin put it, free to give, free to take, free to kill, free to save. So this is our instruction, Rohatsu instruction. 
die the great death. Then freely walk through the cosmos and whatever you do will manifest this. So Hakuin went through severe training with Shoju, who didn't acknowledge his Kensho, but rather rejected his efforts over and over, calling him a poor, hole-dwelling devil. He lost every shred of his self-congratulatory certitude. We need this. This is training. He plunged into despair. And then into non-discriminatory consciousness. And in the text, he wrote, on entering this non-discriminatory consciousness, you must not retreat even a hair's breadth, but bore steadily on, seeking the great transformation. As we do, sitting after sitting in this great Rohatsu session, entering non-discriminatory consciousness maybe seems like just for a moment, but how long is that moment? Compared to what? It's all of it. And boring steadily on. And seeing every illusory thought as it arises. And seeing its root. And seeing the karmic imprints ready to take hold. Judgment, blame, needing to control out of our deep insecurity, meddling in others' business, seeing the old patterns. We have to see them in order to cut through, in order to return to non-discrimination. And this happened to Hakuin while on Takahatsu this return into complete and total non-discrimination where the entire universe in all ten directions and all the heavens and hells will become one with your mind and body and will then all at once 
disappear without a trace. It happened to him on Takahatsu, begging rounds, chanting ho as we will this evening. Ho means dharma. He was so immersed in his koan that he didn't hear or see the old woman who came out of the house. Get away, I don't want you around here. And he just continued. And she started whacking him with broom and knocked him out. (laughs) With that K.O., that Keisaku, he returned entirely new, reborn. And suddenly, the koan was so clear. He had many, many spiritual breakthroughs over the next 10 years. Yet he still felt something was missing. He said, I could see that the two aspects of my life, the active and the meditative, were totally out of balance. No matter what I was doing, I never felt free or completely at ease. I realized I would have to rekindle a fearless resolve and once again throw myself, life, and limb together into the Dharma struggle. I began devoting myself single-mindedly to my practice, forsaking food and sleep altogether. And what happened? He got sick. And he had to go and see the old recluse living in a cave, Hakuyu, who taught him the technique of Nikon meditation, filling the tondan and lower body with ki, with energy, instead of letting it rise up and become diffused, and regained his health over a three-year period. Then his father became ill and asked him to come back and take over Shoinji, which had become very dilapidated, had no priest. And so he undertook the next part of his life, becoming an abbot taking on the iron yoke. And before Hakuin's father passed on, he uh, asked him to take on the name Hakuin, which means hidden in whiteness, perhaps referring to the snows of Mount Fuji, perhaps to his the purity of his vow. And so he registered Shoinji over the next few years with headquarters at Myoshinji. He acquired and 
renovated an old temple called Ryutakuji, Dragon Swamp, and had it moved from the swamp to a beautiful hillside that we visited. And there are so many other passages of his life that are really beautiful that bear out this text that he wrote on the Alaya consciousness. But I want to end with uh, something from Shunan Noritake Roshi. This is from a commemorative lecture for the 250th anniversary of Hakuin's death given at Myoshinji in 2017, April 29th, and a commemoration was also held at Yutakuji that fall. And thanks to Noritake Roshi's kindness, I was able to attend and bring Chigon Roshi and Shukusan and Myogen and Kai and Fumio. Uh, to that. One really an amazing experience. So, let me just read this little passage. One night, not long after he had started living in his dilapidated temple, his mother came to him in a dream and presented him with a purple robe made of silk. Picking it up, he noticed that the two sleeves were unexpectedly heavy. Examining them, he found in each sleeve an old mirror. The mirror from the right sleeve sent forth a light that penetrated to the depths of his spirit. His own mind and the mountains Rivers and great earth seemed as transparent as a clear pool with nothing there. The mirror from the left sleeve, which gave off no light, was like the surface of a new pan that had never been touched by fire. Suddenly, though, he realized that this mirror shined with a brilliance a hundred billion times greater than that of the other mirror. After this, when he looked at all things, it was like looking at his own face, and he realized the meaning of the saying, the Tathagata sees Buddha nature in his eye. And then Noritake Roshi says, The only purple robe Hakuin needed was the one he had received from his mother in the dream he had had when he was 40 years old. Hakuin spent his life covered in the blood and mud of hell, sharing the sufferings of the common people's lives. For that A plain black robe was quite 
sufficient. Now you may know that when we do ancestor commemorations, we get all dressed up. For a Halloween's commemoration, I decided just to wear my old tattered robe that's falling apart every time I put it on, more threads come off, and it somehow made me feel this, this is for Halloween Zenji. His profound awakenings led him to devote himself to bringing benefit to countless sentient beings everywhere. He was no longer seeking an escape from hell. It now became his home. He was not finding emancipation from samsara, but within it. And he called himself Old Man Sendai, which is Japanese for Ichantika, a bodhisattva who renounces attainment of Buddhahood and remains in hell like Jizo. And from the age of 80 on, he did many calligraphies, Namu Jigoku Daibosatsu, homage, great hell, bodhisattva. And on the 11th day of the 11th month, in his 84th year, he gave a great cry and passed away, lying on his right side, just like Shakyamuni at his Parinirvana. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.